When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is the battery draining TJ2 the Deuce. That was a good one. Nice. Thank you. <clears throat> that was really good. What was that? That Maybe I should just have one of these every week. This is a Westbrook white tie wheat ale with spices. So huh. we'll see how this goes. That, that can be right. a dicey proposition. Anything quote, with spices. Sounds wintry. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. And sitting beside me, I have Mr. Will the Thrill. Greetings and salutations. And that wasn't as good uh, as TJ's. That was weak. That was weak, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is a bottle. I think you had a can. So this well, was. Um, this is good. I taste uh, hints of coriander and uh, orange zest. Huh. Oh wow! I've got the Figaro Mountain Brewing Company Danish Red Lager, conveniently mm. up from uh, Solvang or near Solvang. Near Solvang. Interesting. Near Solvang. I feel like you should only drink beer during this series that I bought at that store. We're gonna have a problem very soon. If that's the case. Then we should just go back. I'm fine with that. We can go back to Solvang. All right. right. It's not Solvang. It's close to Solvang. It's like 10 minutes. Yes, but we went we wound up in Solvang. It wouldn't be the worst thing. Yeah. So uh really quick, we don't actually have any passings to report because we recorded last week's episode yesterday. So if that makes any sense. We will as always, we would of course mention any on our socials and stuff. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And we will take this time really quick, guys, to say up at the top of the show, because some of you guys might, you know, cut out when you start hearing us you know pulling our bull crap at the end of the episodes <laughs> but i will ask you guys if you do have a couple minutes if you guys could please head over to apple podcasts and leave us a rating and a review that would help us out a lot algorithms got an algorithm and uh, we would really really appreciate any kind of review that you guys can give us now if you're going to give us a crappy review please email us first and uh talk to us and you know we're more just than tell us, then tell us why and just yes. and, and just and just talk to us and tell us why we're 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 reasonable people unless you're a dick. And if the subject line is "I'm going to give you a bad review," we will check it out. Yes. <laughs> so instead of having to be the bearer of bad news, I'm just going to tell you guys a fun fact that I learned today. Fun fact. Fun fact. That the characters' ages on the Golden Girls are actually younger than the character ages of the women for the Sex and the Spitty, Spitty, City reboot, spinoff, whatever you call it, and just really? like that. Cash grab. Really? Yes. Which is why. Okay, wait a minute. So, hold on a second. So the actual ages of the actors from the Golden Girls? Okay, so here it is. Both Cynthia Nixon and Sarah mm. Jessica Parker are 55, and Kristen Davis is 56, whereas in the Golden Girls, Rose was 55 dorothy was 54 blanche 53 when the show premiered oh wow so that is that, that is that is bonk that blows my yeah. mind that's really crazy that's, <laughs> so it would be more age appropriate for any of us to 
date B. Arthur than it would Kristen. <laughs> yes. Yes, it would. Yes. Just, that's so funny to me. So I just, oh. I thought that that was a, a fun little moment of levity because you know what? Hey, LD, here's a yeah. personal fun fact. Fun fact. Yes, fun fact. Kristen Davis graduated from AC Flora High School in Columbia, South Carolina. Fun fact. That is fun. Indeed. She's from South Carolina. And her father, I believe, was or maybe still is a professor at the College of Charleston. Interesting. Ask wow. uh, ask our sister. Ask Anna the next time you see her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just glad we started out with a little bit of fun and levity because this episode is friggin' dark, kids. Oh, boy. So, when we last left Michael, surprisingly, and we sort of left them in an okay place. Can I do, like, a little intro thing? I've got it. Ready? What? Last time on Michael. You know, like, how they no, did recap? I did. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, because, I mean, this is, like a, uh, this is like a series at this point. It's going to last 26 episodes. <laughs> last time on Michael. This is no longer called Rock and Roll Heaven. It is just Michael Jackson's story. <laughs> Michael Jackson, a retrospective with LD. (laughs) 395 parts about the king of pop. Woot. Woot. So, honestly, like, when we left him, like, yeah, he was kind of grumpy that his brother was trying to, like, scooch in on his lawyer. But honestly, like, he was in a better place. You know, he had just finished Off the Wall. It was super successful. I mean, he was grumpy that he only won one Grammy. But seriously, that's still a Grammy better than what we have. So by early 1980, hey guys, we're in the 1980s. We're in the 80s. It only took us what, nine episodes. Eight episodes. Oh, eight episodes. I'm eight sorry. Episodes. There's only 28 years left. <laughs> I don't know anymore. I think I'm a Jackson. So by early 1980s, a young employee named Gina Sprague, and I'm, I meant to look that up. So from the now on, I'm from the now on, I'm going to call her <laughs> Gina. The now on. Now, we know that Catherine had attempted to divorce Joe in 1973 and then again in 1979, neither of which would stick. But that's not where the story ends. No, this this young gentleman was vivacious and intelligent and gorgeous, and Joseph was taken by her. But she insists that she and Joseph never had an affair, even though other outsiders really don't believe her. She said that they were just close friends like he could confide in her her story was that because of the strained relationship between joe and the rest of the family he needed somebody that he could lean on and she was there for him and she worked with them so he she knew that he had a reputation of being a womanizer but that wasn't what their relationship was about he confided in her she knew that the kids hated him mm-hmm. in an almost tearful confession she said the kids hate me gina hates my guts they all do. The one thing that didn't strike her is uh, very early on, Michael and his brothers and sisters would call him Joseph, not dad. She said, the first time Janet came into my office, she was about 13. She walked in in a very flip manner, said, hello, where's Joseph? Hmm. Or Michael would call and say, hey, Gina, this is Michael, it's Joseph there. And she would be like, um, yeah, your father is here, you know, or your dad is not here. One day, Gina was concerned about Joseph's unpredictable behavior and his disappearances, and she asked him what was going on, and he said, I'm not going to tell you. Damn, Gina. Instead, I'm going to show you. Stop it. Sorry. No, I... Give me the bottle. I hit the spray bottle on purpose. No, you did not. not It's right over there. I'm getting up to get the spray bottle. Excuse (sighs) me. Well, while she's doing that, TJ, can you settle a quick uh, trivia debate we had here? Sure. Because we need a ruling. So we were doing some music trivia, as we do. No, we don't. And um, It's a house rule. So the answer to said question you was... You knew I was right. ...was another brick in the wall, part two. 
Okay. Scott's brave. Um, LD's answer was another brick in the wall. Because the would answer you, popped up. Would you allow that? As I was talking. No. No. I know it's part two. It's wrong. Oh, stop. I didn't say that. That was not right. Another brick in the wall oh, is wrong. Geez. It would be another brick That's in the wall. That's cold. I think you filled that up last night. Stop it. When I play trivia games, I'm a prick. <laughs> you, you you better be you better be dead spot on, or I or I will ca- or I'll I'll ring the buzzer, Jack. All right. Well, I'm trying to get through this, and I'm trying to hide that spray bottle again. You can't do it. So he then drove Gina to a building in a suburban Los Angeles neighborhood, where he introduced Gina to Cheryl Tyrell. Terrell. Cheryl, Cheryl Terrell. Yep. A small black child that appeared to be about six years old, came bounding into the living room, arms open, screaming, Daddy, Daddy. Of course, I mean, look at, what, look at his track record. Who's surprised by this? Yeah. He scooped her up in his arms and he hugged her tightly. Good grief. He had explained that him and Cheryl had an affair in 1973. The result was a daughter, Giovanni. She was born in Los Angeles on August the 30th, 1974. Why is that date important? It is one day after Michael's 16th birthday. And just remember at this point, Michael had no idea that he had a half-sister. It's crazy. Joseph Walter Jackson's name appeared on the birth certificate. His occupation is listed as entertainment manager, and his age at the time was recorded at 46 years of age, where his mother's age was 20 years less. Oh my... Joe had kept the secret for many years, but by 1980, he had decided to tell his family about his daughter. Gina meeting Cheryl helped him gather the strength to tell his family. He gathered his son together in a dressing room after a performance to tell them that they had a half-sister. And God only knows what he thought that they would feel or say, or whatever the reaction might be to the news, and why on earth he decided to tell them before telling Catherine. Who hasn't left him by now? Why? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. She's a good. She's a good Jehovah's Witness. I'm pretty sure that is the reason why she is stuck behind us because she's a good. And is it Christian? But she's a good religious woman Ugh. who who doesn't do that. And there are just there are some you know instances where you can't walk away. I mean, what if he's got such a tight grip on that family? Do you think that he would ever give her a house or give her any? kind of leeway if she left them she probably could sue the crap out of him i mean well i was yeah i was gonna say i don't i don't know that he would have a choice right (laughs) that's what i'm saying it's like pretty sure if you outside your wedlock father a child that the judge is gonna view that dimly (laughs) yes that will not be favorable the the other thing is he's still got kids that are underage at home because michael just turned 21 but you've still got janet and you know all the other kids Mm -hmm. that are still there they're still underage so i mean of course like when they found this out, everybody was upset. Nobody, nobody knew who should tell their mom, but it came down to, yeah, they probably should tell her. Joseph put a massive burden on the kids by telling them this information first. Oh, like this was probably a very calculated move by him. And in the end, it wasn't Joseph that broke the news to them, to, to Catherine. According to his biography, Moonwalk, it did come from one of the boys, but nobody knows who it was. And of course, she was overcome with emotion. And it should be noted that Michael didn't cover this at all in his autobiography. 
He doesn't talk. He just doesn't talk about. He it? doesn't talk huh. about this this stuff in his autobiography. So interesting. So in his his biography, his biographer does mention this in his autobiography it is not mentioned at all and 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 honestly it might have been too painful for him to write about because he does glaze over a lot of the stuff between him and his dad Mm -hmm. he does talk about how he's angry at him but he never fully lets it out so she and joseph had it out of course they did because she is a sensible and religious woman along with being a very practical woman and she was committed to the family catherine put her feelings aside and in a move that had to come from the hand of Jesus, she agreed that Joseph had a responsibility to his daughter and her mother. And a way of providing for those new members of the family was that she and Joseph purchased a three-bedroom home in Van Nuys, which is actually a suburb of Los Angeles, which is actually not too far from where we're sitting right now. For about (laughs) $169,000. Whoa. And uh, try to get a three-bedroom home in Van Nuys for $169,000. You can't get three of anything you can't, for $169,000. You can Van get Nuys. three cartons of eggs and maybe three gallons of gas. Perhaps, but, yeah. So Giovanni and her mother moved into the new home, and that was all that Catherine was going to do. Joseph pushed her to be accepting as, you know, being accepted as a member of the family. And understandably, Catherine was very hesitant and very emotional about that. And it seems like a change had come over Catherine. She rarely smiled and her temper would flare up over insignificant things. And she, she even swore from time to time. That's not very Jehovah's Witnessy. Well, it's very yeah. unusual for her too. Extremely unusual. And the thing is, she was bitter and angry. I mean, who would? Sure, I mean, yeah. like you have a lifetime of infidelity and abuse. Yeah. Yeah. You'd probably be a little pissy. Very hard to blame her. Well, you got, you're stacking up to years and years of this happening. And all of a sudden his chickens come home to roost, you know? And who's got to pay for it? She does. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. She's affected in every way, you know, mentally, physically, financially. Mm-hmm. Think about the burden that's on this poor woman right now. So she wants to be forgiving because that was the way of the Jehovah's Witnesses. She wouldn't discuss her hurt or what happened. She would just keep it bottled up. And it was only a matter of time before she was going to erupt. Especially when she heard rumors that summer of 1980 that he was having an affair with Gina. Wow. The woman that he had first confided in about his daughter. So think about that. He actually went to someone completely outside of the family first, which, you know what? Honestly, I can understand that a little bit. You have a ton of kids at home. You have a wife cheated on her before she's dealt with infidelity. Maybe Gina was there to kind of test the waters and see like, this is my kid. What would you do if you were my wife? Whoops, you know? Yeah, I'm confiding in you about cheating on my wife and having a child out of wedlock. And speaking of which, wow, yeah, since we're on the topic. But yeah. see, I, I, okay, this is going to sound weird. It almost sounded like he respected Gina more. So I sort of believe her when she says that they didn't have an affair. But then you said they did. No, she wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, well I think I think she. you just said that. Catherine heard Catherine, rumors. Oh, heard rumors. Okay. Catherine heard or thought that they did. Got and it. Okay. Got honestly, it. really, given his background, why wouldn't you think that? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. where my mind went. That's, that's exactly right. But but according to both Joe and Gina, they never had an affair, which that's I'm kind of tempted to believe both parties because at this point, Joe, you got bigger troubles because you got a six-year-old daughter. Yeah. So as time passed, Gina began to cover for Joseph whenever he wanted to visit his daughter. Even though 
everybody in the family knew about her. He didn't want to flaunt her. So he wouldn't bring her around, but he also wouldn't tell the family when he was going to visit her. She would lie and say that he was in a meeting or otherwise unavailable. And this went on for a couple months. And because the two of them seemed to share so many secrets, rumors flew around his production company that they were having an affair. And apparently somebody in the office was feeding this information to Catherine, who already suspected Joseph of cheating on her. And understandably, she was dealing with the shock of Cheryl and Giovanni. One day the phone rang and Gina picked it up. Good afternoon, Joseph Jackson Productions. The voice on the phone, which was a female voice, said, I want you to quit your job. Do you hear me? Quit or we're coming to get you. Gina panicked and was like, who is this? And the caller hung up. She went straight to Joseph and told him about this mystery phone call. And he dismissed it as being anything but like a practical joke. But the next day, on the 16th of October, 1980, at three in the afternoon, Gina was behind her desk when Randy, now age 18, entered the office. He asked the other employees to leave so that he and Gina could be alone. The employees did as they were told. Randy then left for a moment and returned with Janet, who was 14 at the time, and Catherine. According to his biography, Randy and Janet pulled her into the stairway and assaulted her. Hmm. M. Craig, who was an office security guard, heard screams. He went to investigate, and he said that he observed Randy holding Gina across the wall while Catherine pummeled her with her purse. Upon seeing the guard, Janet screamed at him, saying that he needed to leave because this was a family affair, and so he just got the F out of there. (laughs) Catherine grabbed the gold medallion from Gina's neck, hissing that that belongs to me, not you. And then one of Diana Ross's brothers happened by. He asked, Mother, what are you doing? A lot of Catherine's friends called her mother, and she looked at him deadpan and told him that this was a family family matter and then he ran away stunned huh. how busy is the stairway also like Everyone's yeah that's, that's a lot of people to be happening through the stairwell yeah There's a lot of people you got like three people that are coming <laughs> through yeah i'm whooping this lady's ass you need to mind your business yes. yeah, pretty much because it's 1980s and, and we're in los angeles and uh while i'm kicking this woman's ass i would uh prefer to be alone thank you so The arrest report is pretty graphic from what I understand. I actually attempted to pull it, but I couldn't find it. So I think I would actually have to physically go to the police station that it was filed in because it's also not in the book. But apparently it is pretty graphic because she was put on a stretcher after the police and ambulance had been summoned. Wow. Joseph leaned over and asked her who did this to it. Was it a crazy fan? And she whispered, it was Catherine. Joseph was in disbelief. Gina was taken to uh, Hollywood Presbyterian Medical Center where she was treated for multiple cuts and bruises and a minor head injury. While she was there, Joseph did not visit her. She was released the next day. She was exhausted, so she went to bed as soon as she got home. Just as she was about to doze off, she heard loud voices and her friend refusing to allow someone in the house. It was Joseph. And here's one of the most despicable things I have literally ever heard. Wow. Uh, Instead of offering any kind of condolences or trying to figure out how to resolve the matter, he actually blamed Gina and the facts that his misdeeds were going to be released to the public. So he was like, please don't tell anyone about this because it'll look bad for my family. Good God. Now that my wife and kids have whipped your ass, the world might know that I cheat on my wife. You're a bitch. Yeah. No, no, no. It wasn't just that. He actually tried to bribe her. What? He handed her a check for an incredibly large amount of money 
And she said that uh, she didn't want it. She crumpled it up and threw it at him. And then she demanded that he leave. So when word got to Michael, he was absolutely stunned that his sister, brother, and mother could possibly attack someone. He could not reconcile such a violent act being done by his mother. He insisted that it never happened. The thing is, Catherine had reached her limit. Gina actually decided not to press charges against the Jacksons. She said that her attorney told her not to bother because they were so rich that they would never go to jail and that she would just be wasting her time trying to put them there. So instead, she filed for a $21 million civil lawsuit against Catherine, Randy, and Janet. Wow. Janet, who is a minor at this point. Oh, yeah, that's right. She's Correct. Minor. Yeah. 14? Yeah. They denied it, and they said that Gina would have never been injured if she had, and I quote, exercised ordinary care on her behalf. What? Yeah. Like, don't get attacked by people in a stairwell? That's ordinary care? Yeah, I guess so. Like, don't get hired at a place. Yeah, don't work. Yeah. In the end, Gina and Joseph negotiated an out-of-court settlement, the mm. details of which she was never at liberty to disclose. Because it's out of court. You know, yeah. You know. Yeah, if it's out of court, then you can seal <clears throat> that up. Yep. But, I mean... At this time, like, think about what Joseph has done to this family. I, I'm sorry. If you're a fan of Joseph, please write me and tell me why. <laughs> like, I, I am, like, genuinely want to know who, who his fans are. So it's about this time that Michael Jackson would make a very famous friend. So he's finally got a friend. Her name was Jane Fonda. Oh, nice. Okay, so, so not, uh, not the... Um... Not the mouse. No, he, he's moved okay. on from Ben. Yeah, Ben's, ben Ben's, Ben's probably dead. Uh, that bubonic plague, man, I tell yeah. you. I don't know how long. The, the either that, either that or cheese in a tryout. It's, but it's definitely probably one of those. Yeah. yeah. So the two of them, they actually bonded over their fathers being emotionally distant. And Jane tried to push Michael to see his mother in a little bit more of a human light. This is a quote from Jane Fonda. For a number of years, I organized a disco dancing Halloween fundraiser for CED, the California Campaign for Economic Democracy. This is the same organization that profits from the Jane Fonda workout supported by its particular event in 1979. So Michael Jackson attended several of those events with me. And he said to me at the last one that he attended that one day he would ask for a return favor. And in 1980, he called me and asked me if he could come visit me on the set of On Golden Pond in New Hampshire. We stayed there for about 10 days. We went skinny dipping together. And then we did a long taped interview with Catherine Hepburn. He had just finished The Wiz. It was his first movie and he wanted to learn all he could about film acting. I write about this experience in my memoir, My Life So Far. What Michael and Jane were talking about during the drive, Jane was behind the wheel because remember michael wasn't comfortable enough to get his license until he was 23 and he wasn't 23 yet they were discussing possible film projects for him and uh, jane had said that she had wished that she could find a movie to produce for michael suddenly it sparked in her eyes she said you know what you have got to do peter pan tears welled up in michael's eyes and he demanded to know why she would suggest that character she told him that in her eyes he really was Peter Pan. He was the symbol of youth and joy and freedom. And after hearing this, Michael began to wail. He confided in her that he had pictures of Peter Pan all over his walls, that he identified with Peter Pan and the Lost Boys in Neverland. Although he felt like he was taking steps towards his independence from his father, uh, by this time, he had felt like his life was spinning out of control. He I was tell you, nothing kills, nothing, 
nothing kills the good vibes of uh you know being naked with a lady in a pond quite like crying <laughs> yeah well they weren't <clears throat> naked in a pond at this point they're they in a driving, car right? they're in a car but they but yeah but i mean they they had seen one another naked they, yeah. if they skinny if they legit skinny dip that's yeah they they had yeah. i don't know if this car ride came before or after <laughs> i don't that there you know this was an article but, but i'm just saying you know we, hey we've seen each other naked and everything and now i'm gonna cry i mean will does that all the time buzzkill <laughs> what skinny dip no we said, i've seen you naked and you cry all the time are those things mutually exclusive or i mean in this context yes. to be concurrent I... <laughs> well i didn't say i cried i said you cried what <laughs> does he cry because he sees you naked i'm confused about what you're saying here what this is this has gone to some very strange places <laughs> he was having major self-esteem issues and problems with his physical appearance on stage, he could be seen as desirable and sexy, but when he looked in the mirror, he didn't like what he saw. He saw a person who was allowing himself to be controlled by other people, and he was taking steps by hiring his own attorney, but he really wanted to do something about his appearance. Michael actually had considered rhinoplasty as a possible way of fixing his nose since about the age of 13. He was always fixated on his nose, and his brothers only made him feel worse about himself because they had the nickname for him, which was Big Nose. What 13-year-old think about plastic surgery on their nose? Okay, well, you weren't in the spotlight when you were 13. You didn't have millions. That's probably for the best, but... Yeah, but I'm saying you didn't have that. He had millions of people looking at him, you know, at any given time. He was all, he's been in the spotlight since he was five. That's true. So, I mean, yeah, if he looks in the mirror and then like compound that with the acne that he was dealing with Mm. and the fact that he had, you know, his father pushing this narrative that he had a big nose that he didn't look as good as he could have. And the thing is, if you look at his original nose and look at Joe Jackson's nose, they're almost the exact same nose. Yeah. And they are very large. Yeah, but like, I mean, I mean, that, which I, I mean, I don't see that. I don't see why that's a problem or why anybody cares. But I mean, just I mean, just generally speaking, I mean, yes, that he did have a very large nose. Yeah, I mean, the whole wide, flat nose. I can't actually, remember. It was either Damon Wayans or Chris Rock had a whole bit one time about Michael Jackson's nose, which sucks because that makes you even more self-conscious. self-conscious yeah. That makes you even more self-conscious if people are doing comedy bits. I mean, I don't. No wonder he was so fixated on his nose Mm. if you look at the family tree that wide flat nose was throughout the whole thing and like even janet had it growing up and jermaine had it so like you know it was it was a hereditary thing but i think the other kids either took it more in stride or grew out of it once they got a little older because like this was the focus of his brothers making fun of him was his nose So he was doing a complicated dance routine in 1979. He actually tripped and broke his nose. So fate intervened and he actually had no choice. Yeah, yeah. So he flew to Los Angeles and had his very first rhinoplasty. And when the bandages came off, Michael actually really liked what he saw. Interestingly enough is the the nose that you see on the off the wall album cover is the results of that surgery. Did they go back and change it? He does. Apparently, the doctor that did the original one didn't quite do it right. And so he was actually having problems breathing and troubles when he was singing. Oh, man. So he was referred to another doctor who suggested a second surgery. And Jane Fonda thought that his new surgery was was getting to be a little too much. So up to this point, she would be the only person that would actually confront him about his surgeries. She said, I want you to stop. No more. After this, Please no more. Promise me you won't go too far with this thing. 
love yourself the way you are. And Michael sheepishly answered, I'll try. But even after two nose jobs, he still wasn't happy or confident. Even at home, he said, I'm lonely. I sit in my room sometimes and cry. It's so hard to make friends. There are some things that you can't talk about to your parents or your family. Sometimes I just walk around the neighborhood at night hoping to find somebody to talk to, but I just end up coming home, which is so incredibly sad. It really is. Now, as you know, also uh, at this time, he's actually still got the really bad acne. And Jermaine also had the same kind of acne. But in the past few months, Jermaine had read that the foods that they were so used to, which was like fast, greasy foods, you know, kind of like road food might be part of the problem. So Jermaine actually became a vegetarian in order to solve the problem. And that worked. So his face cleared up. So Michael decided that he would do the same thing. One unexpected consequence of the diet was that he lost weight, which I thought was the point of a diet, Mm -hmm. but I could be wrong. Michael was not fat by any stretch of the imagination, but he did still have like a little bit of baby fat on his waist and on his face. So he still had kind of like the moon face. So a lot of people speculated that he had more plastic surgery, but the shape of his face actually became because of the weight loss that he experienced and the natural aging process. Because remember, he's still a kid. He's in his 20s now? I mean, yeah. So another thing that Michael wanted to do to gain some independence was he thought, maybe I should buy my own house. So that's what he did. So in February of 1981, he bought a three-bedroom, three-bathroom condominium. And I have to give the address out because I'm super excited about it. It is 5420 Lindley Avenue. In Van Nuys? Uh, in Encino. Oh, close. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Lindley Avenue. Lindley Avenue. You're going to rock <laughs> down to Lindley Avenue. Yay. And he had bought that house for $210. What? Funny. Okay. Yep. To what? What? He had $210,000. Oh, Sorry, I okay, yes, that's yes. You left out one really important word. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Like, was he living in a like tool shed? $210. Good God. That's what you can get in Encino. So he bought that house in Encino for $210,000. Funny enough, he had paid $175,000 in cash, and the rest came from Catherine. Oh wow. There's a reason for this. In exchange for the other 35000 Michael gave her equity in the condominium as a sole and separate property manager, meaning that she did not have to share it with Joseph. Interesting. It was his way of giving her a little bit of freedom. Nice. And also, it would give her a place to go mm-hmm. if she needed to get away. Uh, initially, Michael didn't move out. He just didn't feel like it was time for him to move yet. He was afraid that if he moved, he might actually die of loneliness. But the condo didn't go to waste. It would be used temporarily as their Encino home when their other home was being remodeled. And it was also a haven for their brothers when they were having marital issues, which apparently runs in the family. This is basically like a family flop house. Kind (laughs) of, yeah. Yeah. Just a place for them to go when they needed to get away. And The Jackson family flop house. I mean, at least Barry Gordy doesn't own it. Hey, LD, I hate to interrupt you, but we need to take a quick break for our sponsors. All right. And we're back. Awesome. Let's jump back into the life of Michael Jackson. In the spring of 1981, they finalized Mm -hmm. the plans for the Jacksons to embark on a 39-city concert tour of the U.S. to support their new album, which was the Triumph album. And Michael just didn't want to go. Mainly it was the amount of time and preparation and work that was involved. And like the fact is he didn't want to go, but he also didn't have a choice Mm. because there was 
a lot of money in this tour. And of course, if Michael walks off, they might lose millions of dollars. Can't have that. Can't have that. What he was really hoping for and what he was really hoping to accomplish by actually going on the tour was that maybe, just maybe, his family could sort of repair themselves. Like he could, they could bond again. And before embarking on that tour, Michael underwent another nose job. And this would be his second, for those who are keeping count. He didn't tell anyone that he was doing it. He just came back home black, blue, and bandaged. And Catherine fretted over him. And he told her that a doctor recommended a second operation to solve his breathing and singing issues. Even at this time, Michael never discussed his surgeries with anyone. But the fact is, he was crying for help. He was slowly becoming obsessed by his appearance, and this is a very dangerous pattern that is beginning to emerge. In June 1981, Michael and Quincy began to work on a story. <laughs> he began to work on a storytelling record. We owned this, Travis. Hmm. It was what a was it? it was a storybook record of Steven Spielberg's film E.T. that Michael would be featured as a vocalist on with the song Someone in the Dark. That was written by someone who literally just passed last week, which was written by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Marilyn Bergman just passed away. We mentioned her name last week. We did, yeah. Michael was so enchanted by the story of E.T., he could not wait to meet the animated extraterrestrial actor when they did a publicity shoot. He grabbed me. He put his arms around me. He was so real that I was talking to him. I kissed him before I left. And the next day I missed him. <laughs> that is so cute. But we own this. You remember this, Travis? I, I do, yeah. We had this because I was a I was a massive Michael Jackson fan. And I was a massive Drew Barrymore fan. And I was a massive E.T. fan because I was into aliens, even when I was two. <laughs> um, as much as a two-year-old could be a fan of anything. You're just looking at me weird. No, I'm sorry. I, Why are you looking I at me? Listening to you. You know what? No, you can't spring. I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did. You looked at me funny. <laughs> also, uh, T, you were six at the time. This is 1980? This is 1981, June 1981. Six. Yeah, six, yeah. Yeah, I was two, I think. Not yet. Not yet. I was like one and a half. But we owned this, and you kept no, it. No, wait. No, no, no. June of 81. No, you were two. I weren't was you? No, I'm September. Oh, that's right. Yeah. No, yeah, you're not even quite to. Yeah, not yeah. even quite to. But I remember that you got it and we held on to that thing for years. <laughs> and I think it got lost in the move. Probably so. Which sucks. Did we have like a, did it come with a cassette? I think it was a vinyl and it might've come with a plushie. Yeah. Okay. It was vinyl. Maybe it was vinyl. Or did we have it on cassette? We I, my recollection is we had it on cassette and we listened to it on my little tape recorder. Or we listened to it on Teddy Ruxpin, which we found would play any tape. Which, yes, which is funny enough would play anything, including like ACDC. Yeah, <laughs> which is amazing. Which is uh, like the, which is the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. You ever watched your teddy bear singing Hell's Bells? I wish. Pretty amazing. <laughs> oh my God, I've got our Christmas. <laughs> I'm buying Teddy Ruxpins for everybody. <laughs> So, uh, since we haven't heard a song yet, let's listen to a little bit of that that song from the storytelling book about E.T. Now, if you guys don't know what E.T. is, I feel like our audience would know what E.T. is. I would imagine. Surely. Yeah. If you guys don't know, uh, number one, it is an incredible film. It is something that should be shared with you as a kid. It is a magical film starring Henry Thomas. <laughs> And it starred Drew Barrymore and not Judith Light, who's the mother. 
It's not Judith Light. Um, Who's the mom? I don't know. You know, if you're if you're my age, it was a, a hallmark touchstone moment. I watched ET at a drive-in movie theater during a meteor shower. Oh my gosh! Um, which was pretty badass. <laughs> and it's also where you saw Drew Barrymore for the first time and began your lifelong crush. Um, are you talking? Are you talking about? You know, that's that's just where it started. No way. Are you talking about you, your lifelong crush with Drew Barrymore, or my lifelong crush with Drew Barrymore? Uh, my mine. Yours didn't come till a little later. <laughs> I think because you I weren't think, really old enough to watch the movie and understand it yet. Um, no, because I, I remember that's when if that's when the world became aware of her, and if you were a little boy like myself, and you, you saw her, and she was cute. Yeah. And then and there was Reese's Pieces and a glowing mm -hmm. finger and a flying bike and all kind of cool stuff that the I watched during a freaking meteor shower. It had everything a kid would want. I remember watching it and bawling my eyes out when they got into the government facility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they changed the guns to walkie-talkies and later printings of the movie? Yes. Oh, that's horseshit. I know they did that, yeah. God, what a bunch of douches. What a bunch of douche bazookas. Yeah. Now, oh, yeah, super scared of your of your of your walkie-talkie. Yeah, government man. Why don't you just walk around with a can and with a string tied to it? Now, I will Dick. say, like back in the '80s, movies were a much bigger event. Like you have tie-in stuff now for like your your watershed movies, like the Avengers. Their their licensing game is ridiculous. Your Justice Leagues. But the fact is, when you had movies like E.T., stuff like this prepped you for the movie. Like, it wasn't, it came out prior to the movie. It hyped up the film. The sure. film didn't hype up the product. The product hyped up the film. Mm -hmm. And so, if you guys are keeping score, E.T. didn't actually come out until 1982. So, in 1981, they're working on the storytelling book. So this no, there were books and there were books and toys and uh, glasses at McDonald's, <laughs> if I re if I remember correctly, all of which we had and broke yes, and yes. would probably be worth a bajillion dollars if had we not done that now. Yes. Um, yeah, but that yeah yeah yes you are correct. There was that was one of the first maybe Star Wars, but I was Star Wars young. I was I was pretty young when Star Wars came out. It's the first movie I remember where there was a, a just a crap ton of merchandising built around it. And yeah, and you are correct. It, that all of that stuff really kind of was was there before the movie even came out. Yeah, and that was the thing is like in the in the like late late seventies, like the, you're talking like Star Wars was nineteen seventy seven, and the merchandise had that empty box campaign for that one Christmas. So like that hype for that movie was real. And so I think they took what happened with Star Wars and went, oh, we have the super hot property. Let's do things. And so now you'll see like tie-ins happening like one of the biggest pop stars in the world doing this storytelling book mm -hmm. so you had like and you make that that connection with oh this is michael jackson i'm going i'm watching this for michael jackson yeah and then you hook the kids that are into michael jackson into watching your movie and that's how they created blockbusters. Yeah, they should have had they should have had ET smoking a Marlboro. Oh my god! I mean, I mean as long as you're trying to get kids hooked on stuff, all right. E like Marlboro. All right, and on that note, before we get taken down by the, well, you're smoking for well, two now, ma'am. Try to think of ways. Yeah, back in the '80s, they did that. They did things to 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 reach the youth. These cigarettes make, are out of this world. Seem, make it seem we we used to sit there and we had candy cigarettes for crying out loud that oh, said Marlboro. Yes. yes we did let's listen to the song somewhere in the dark <laughs> from me 
let's listen to the song she said for the second time in 15 minutes. Yep. Sorry, guys. Sorry. We went on a ride and we took you guys with us. The song is called Somewhere in the Dark and it's from the E.T. storybook. So let's take a listen to that. All right. Enjoy. Oh. 
I remember that. I still like when he does stuff for movies. I don't know why, but it's actually doubly emotional for me. Yeah. Like when I was putting this episode together, I I listened to it again. And I'm just like in the bedroom, like, <laughs> and Will's like, are you okay? I'm like, bye. <laughs> just write my episode. It's a sweet little song. Absolutely. It yeah. is a very sweet little song. And you can understand how that would create some sort of uh, empathy for that character. And make you want to go see what is this whole movie thing about. And so, of course, E.T. was a friggin' smash, and it still is to this day. That's, like, in the... Oh, yeah. It's in the my top 20 films of all time. And I've seen a lot of movies. <laughs> Do you even have a top 10, T? Have you seen 20 movies? <laughs> I'm sure I have. I mean, just, like, 20 that I've watched over and over. <laughs> Fair enough. Later that month, he actually went into the studio with Diana Ross and produced a song for her called Muscles. Funny enough, it was named after his pet snake. It is a special kind of person that can own a snake. Yeah. Because I am so scared. Yeah. So he had this pet snake, and uh, that's pretty much the extent I have about this snake, was that its name was Muscles, and he wrote a song about it for Diana Ross. Don't really talk about him anymore. So I should note at this point that it is popped up a couple times in my research, but I haven't mentioned it yet because I didn't think there was a good point that I could bring it up except for now because people actually started thinking at this point and will think four years later, it is a, it's a huge rumor that has constantly chased him his whole life, was that he was trying to do the plastic surgery to make him look like Diana Ross. I remember hearing that. Yeah, this has been debunked multiple times. The fact is, if he wanted to look like Diana Ross, he could have looked like Diana Ross. Hmm. He had the money and he had the connections. So that is absolutely not true. And at this point, Diana had left Motown, like we discussed, I believe in like the first or second episode. I think it was maybe the second. It might have even been third. I've lost track at this point. But remember, he called her and asked her how she would handle it. And she was like, stay with Motown. Well, at this point, she's left Motown. And she was recording her second album for RCA called Silk Electric. This album was on track to be a disaster. (laughs) So she contacted Michael. And he was actually working on Paul McCartney's album. And he was on a Concorde. And if you guys don't remember what the Concorde was, it was supposed to be the fastest plane in the world. Well, it was the fastest commercial plane in the world at the time. Yeah, you could get to from London to New York in like five hours, right? Yeah, it was ridiculous. Something like something like that. My dad flew on it. I mean, I wish I could have done it just so I wouldn't have had to spend so much time on an airplane. I would have been interested, but apparently they had one massive accident and it, the whole thing got shut down. So, so he was on the Concorde and a song popped into his head. So he didn't have a tape recorder, so he had to suffer for three hours. And as soon as he got home, he put the melody on tape and he thought, this is perfect for Diana. And the fact was that it was. 
it was a top 10 record for Diana Ross. Wow. And so the Triumph Tour began in Memphis on the 9th Wait, of July. What, what, which, which song was top 10? Was that the Muscles song? The song itself was in the top 10. And then the album, the album actually reached peak position of top 10 on Billboard's Hot 100s. It reached 50 in Australia. The Netherlands, it reached the, the top 10. Ireland, it reached top 23. New Zealand, top 18. Sweden, top 6. And the UK singles, top 15. Wow. So that song did pretty well. So the Triumph Tour began in Memphis on the 9th of July, 1981, and ended in a sellout four-night engagement at the Los Angeles Forum, which, does that, does that even exist anymore? Yeah, the Forum's still there. The Forum's still there? Yeah. I knew that they were doing something with uh, the the uh, Rams. I don't think it affected the so though. I wonder, oh yeah, I just wondered if they had, like, knocked down the Forum or not, but... According to the sources, the biggest numbers of the show were always Michael solos from off the wall. There are also special effects where Michael would disappear in a puff of smoke after performing Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. So offstage, Michael really wanted to disappear. He would rarely socialize with any of his brothers or the rest of his entourage. So the idea of him trying to bond with his family, I think at this point, is pretty much a pipe dream. He decided that this was my last tour. He said, I will never do this again ever being on the road with him made his brothers realize how much michael had distanced himself from everyone else he started hinting to the press about the possibilities of a solo career i think that'll happen gracefully <laughs> in the future i think the public will ask for it that's definitely going to happen he told paul greer of the billboard magazine around the time that michael learned to drive he also would leave the estate when things became too difficult to be there. Singer Mickey Free of the group Shalimar remembers his first meeting with Michael in the fall of 81. He said, I was signed to Diana Ross's management company at the time when she was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel and she asked me if I wanted to come down to her bungalow and meet Michael. Well, who do you mean? And so she told him and he's like, so I went and had dinner with Michael, Diana, and Jean. <sighs> Who is this Gene, you might ask? Well, fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. That Gene was Gene Simmons of Kiss, who happened to be Diana's boyfriend at the time. Oh, my. Really? That's, yes. That's interesting. Oh, I did not know that. Didn't know that either till I wrote it down. <laughs> that is a weird dinner. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the meal, Michael actually offered to take Mickey home. They got to Mickey's apartment. And for 15 minutes, Michael drove around the block. He just kept circling the block around Mickey's apartment complex. And then he confessed. He knew how to drive, but he had never learned how to parallel park. <laughs> so he asked Mickey to park his Rolls Royce with him. So Michael stopped the car in the middle of the road and the two traded seats. Mickey confessed that he drove around the block about 10 times trying to find a parking place, hoping that people would see him driving around in Michael Jackson's fabulous car. <laughs> so, That's funny. Uh, after the fall of 1981, despite their best efforts to keep the mess that was the Jackson family under wraps, uh, most insiders were well aware of what was happening between Catherine and Gina. And that's because they had caught on to public filings of the lawsuits and litigations. So this is about the time where the paparazzi figures out that because it is a public filing, that they can go and look at it themselves. So, you know, it, despite the best efforts of the family and Joe and the record label and everyone else attempting to keep everything under wraps, people got a little smarter 
and started picking through, you know, their proverbial trash. And so because of all this, Michael was regressing. He started buying toys and playing childlike games. And for the first time, this is where he starts surrounding himself with kids. Uh, these are fans who would gather at the gates of the estate to catch a glimpse of any member of the Jackson family coming or going. And now and again, they were actually invited in to spend time with Michael. And I think everybody can agree that that is odd behavior. But now instead of calling him big nose, everybody was calling him man child. And since this is, you know, the written word and not an interview, I couldn't tell if that was actually peppered with sarcasm or not. You know, he would kid, but, you know, there was something underneath that that was actually pretty rough and raw when it came to that nickname. And when talking about having his own kids, Michael would shake his head. He would like to raise a child, but it would be one that he would adopt and hold on for three of those in future episodes. Michael said, I don't have to bring my own into the world. It's not necessary for me to do that. One of my favorite pastimes is being with children, talking to them, playing in the grass with them. The one main reason why I do what I do is they know everything that people are trying to figure out. They know so many secrets, but it's hard for them to get it out. I can recognize that and learn from it. They say things that astound you and they, they go through this brilliant genius stage. But when they become a certain age, and then Michael would pause and say, they lose it. Um, J. Randy Terabinelli, the author of the book, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, which is where a lot of this episode in particular is drawn from, actually had an interview set up with Michael. So he was a, this guy, uh, J. Randy Terabinelli was a journalist. And so he had actually written a lot of articles about Michael and had, had had a lot of interactions with Michael before. Like I said, he had done, uh, he had made mention of like, Michael turns 16, Michael turns 18, Michael turns 20, Michael turns 21. And so he would do those articles. And so it wasn't the first time that he had even had an interview with Michael specifically. So he set up that interview and a representative from Epic had called the head office and told him that he wasn't supposed to talk about the incident with Gina or any questions about the state of Michael's parents' marriage. So he was actually at his desk compiling a list of questions when Michael actually called him on the phone. That's weird, he thought. He basically wanted Jay to have Janet sit in on the interview and he would ask Janet the question and then Janet would ask Michael the question. Then Michael would answer the question to Janet. Then Janet would answer the question to Jay. Awkward. Yeah. It was like, a, could you ask Janet... You know, bop, bop, bop. well, could, uh, you know, Janet, could you please ask Michael if he would like some water? And she'd go, Michael, do you want some water? And he'd go, can you tell Jay I would like some water? And then so she'd go, weird. Jay, he would like some water, you know, and then that that's basically what happened. So Jay thought that was weird and Michael wouldn't really give him a reason why. So he told Michael that much. And then Michael just kind of was like, if you don't want to do it this way, there's no interview. And he was like, all right, all right well, we'll try it. We'll try it. And then Michael hung up the phone. Okay, I'm going to try to explain this whole interaction as best I can, but I'm telling you, this is super weird, but there is actually a reason in the end. So like, don't worry, there is a mild explanation. Jay showed up for the interview and he and Michael exchanged pleasantries in the living room. And then Janet, who was now 15, came in wearing a leather mini skirt, black boots and a plaid sweater. She didn't say hello at all and just sat down to Michael 
not even acknowledging Michael's presence. Then Michael introduced Jay to Janet like they had never met, but of course he had because he had done dozens of interviews with Michael before. Michael told him that they were to conduct the interview the way that Jay had promised, and Jay basically said he couldn't promise anything. Mm -hmm. At that point, Michael told him if he wouldn't do it that way, he would be done. He, he stood up to leave. So Jay folded. He was like, all right, let's try it. Let's start with a new album. How do you feel about it? Michael just stared at him and turned to his sister and asked her to ask him the question that Jay had just asked him. Janet turned to Michael and asked him how he felt about the new album. Michael said, tell him I'm very happy with it. Working with my brothers again was an incredible experience for me. It was, and then Michael stopped like he was searching for the right word. Magical, he said. Hmm. Janet nodded her head and then turned to Jay and almost said verbatim what Michael has said, except for she left out the word magical. To which Michael chided her, telling her that she forgot the part about being magical. And then Janet looked apologetic, turning to Jay and said, he said it was magical. This interview went on for another half hour. <laughs> <laughs> and it was super awkward. Janet would interject comments of her own in an effort to keep the conversation alive, but it did not go well. Finally, Jay decided that he had enough and he would rather not continue with the interview. Michael asked him why not. And then he turned to Janet and asked her to tell Jay about what happened when he visited Catherine Hepburn's house last month. He said it was a good story. Jay pushed Michael to have him tell the story, but he said he just couldn't. At that point, Jay completely gave up and he told Michael, just forget the whole thing. Michael said, okay, cool. Then he stood up and left the room. Janet extended her palms up to say like, look what you did. Like, this is your fault. As he was putting his notes and his tape recorder in his briefcase, Catherine walked in and looked concerned. She asked if Jay had interviewed Michael and then she pleaded for him to please be nice. And then she asked him to let himself out. The next morning, Jay got a phone call from Joseph. And according to Joseph, Michael had told his record company that he no longer sought direct contact with the media for fear of questions about that girl, you know, the one that we got the problem with, plus some other stuff that they had going on. And this is a quote. But when he said he didn't want to do no interviews, the label forced him into it. I told him that he needs to talk to you and the other guys in the press. It's the right thing to do, Joseph said. So what could I say? He did it his way. Sorry. Guess he wanted some control in his life. So Jay never wrote about the episode. He canceled the feature. And in the end, Michael got exactly what he wanted, which was no story. Hmm. Uh, the end of the summer of 1982, Catherine was done with Joseph's behavior, but she knew that Joseph would never learn. He, she actually suspected that he was having another affair. There was one day where there was a series of hang-up calls when she answered the phone and Catherine was sick of it. So she went into the kitchen and told Joseph that she was leaving the estate to go shopping. He kissed her goodbye and she walked down the driveway. The phone rang again, just like she thought it would. So she walked into the guest house and picked up the phone. And she listened in as Joseph spoke to the woman who he was apparently having another romantic relationship with. According to Catherine, he sounded sweet and he sounded happy. 
Now the call ended and she walked back into the house. He was in the living room with his feet up on the couch and he didn't acknowledge her until she cleared her throat. He sprang to his feet and he said, oh, hi, Kate, I thought you were gone. She told him that she had heard the conversation with his girlfriend. She called him a bastard and then she let him have it. Mm -hmm. She pummeled him with her fist. She pulled at his hair. She threw a fit and then she lunged for him again and there wasn't anything to stop her. She smashed glasses. She was done. She screamed, I don't want you anymore, Joseph. I don't need you anymore. I want you out of this house. You are nothing to me now. Get out. And with that, he turned and walked out of the room and she grabbed a silver framed photograph of the two of them from the table and threw it onto the floor with everything that she had and she shattered it. The next day, August 19th, 1982, Catherine finally filed for divorce again. She didn't care about press coverage. She knew that this would cause a problem, but she did it anyway. The next day, August 19th, 1982, Catherine quietly filed for divorce. Her action got practically no press coverage. She was discreet, not wanting to jeopardize the family's image with a public and volatile divorce. In her petition for a divorce, she stated approximately one year ago, Joseph told me they were running short of money. I asked him questions about the businesses and he told me to stay out of the business. As I am informed and believe that within that year, Joseph has spent in excess of $50,000 on a young woman and has purchased for her parcels of real estate property from our community funds. Oh, wow. I'm fearful that unless restrained by an order of this court, Joseph will continue to dissipate community funds and transfer community funds in jeopardy of my community property rights. This time around, she actually had a vague idea of exactly how much community property existed. So she wanted to keep Joseph from transferring or otherwise disposing of any of it. Because remember, the first time she actually left those pages blank because she didn't know like what the kids were making, what property they owned anything. So what she was aware of, she listed, which was the Encino home that they had purchased for Cheryl, furniture and furnishings and other personal properties, her interest in Joseph Jackson production and various bank accounts. And she made a list of the rest of the community assets, which were a 1979 Mercedes-Benz, 1971 blue gray Mercedes-Benz, a 1971 Rolls-Royce, a 1978 brown Mercedes-Benz, a 1971 Blue Rolls-Royce, a 1974 GMC motorhome, and a 1981 Toyota truck, along with a 1980 white Cadillac limousine and a 1978 Ford van, two boats, which were day cruisers with trailers, and a Kyog financial plan. K.O.? K.O. financial plan. We know nothing about financial planning. Anyway, so there was only one little hitch in her Declaration of Independence from Howard, who had become her business manager in 1988, recalled that she had filed for divorce, naturally expecting Joseph to move out of the house. However, he refused to leave. So what should she do? Joseph defiantly told her that it was his house and that she was his wife and that he loved her and that she was going to stay and that it was going to stay that way. God, he was a dick. Yeah, pretty much. Michael basically told his mom that she had to kick him out or call the police or getting a restraining order, but he just couldn't stay there because he wanted to. Like, he didn't have the right to stay there just because he wanted to. It was the kid's house, honestly, because the kids had made all the money. And the, the sad thing is that Catherine didn't want to discuss the matter with any of her kids because in her eyes, that was her cross to bear. She had married Joseph. She had stayed with him. 
you know, she might not never have stepped in when she should have stepped in. And that was something that she felt like she needed to deal with on her own. This is killing me, Michael told his older sister, Rebby. I will never get married. I will never trust a person that way. I could never bear going through this again. Rebby told him, you will live your life differently. Trust me. And on that note, that's where we're going to end this episode. But don't worry, guys. The next episode should be a real thriller. <laughs> All right. Parting thoughts, guys. Uh, I see what you did there. You proud of me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Top five. laughs> Definitely up to the standard that we're accustomed to. Yeah, just effing our way to the middle, right? <laughs> uh, do you have thoughts, Travis? Yeah, Jesse Jackson sounds like a terrible husband. That's my main takeaway from this episode, other I, than... I think you call him Jesse Jackson. <laughs> jo I said Joseph. Okay. Joseph, Joseph Jackson was uh, a, a terrible husband, and you're starting to see some of the behavior from Michael that so, a, a little petulant or something, the, the way he behaved with the reporter and stuff. And then there's some things that in future years, either, well, you know, we'll just get there later, but there's some, there are already some seeds sown that are going to cause some trouble for him later on. Yes. I mean, you're starting to, like, we can just lay it out because I'm sure people already know this. You see the nexus of him hanging out with kids. You right. see him regressing. You see him being shy with the media. You see his obsession with plastic surgery. You see all these things that are going to be hallmarks of his behavior later. You start to see those things manifesting now. And the fact is that it doesn't get better for him because the media exposure explodes. The next episode, it's going to explode. The fact is he becomes the biggest pop star in the world. So none of this eases up. So, of course, like, if none of these things are addressed early on, of course, they're going to become habitual things that consistently happen. Exactly. Will, thoughts? Well, it's interesting how, I, and I don't know how much media attention these things were getting at the time with Joseph Jackson and the family. I don't think any, barely at all. Which is crazy, because as we get into, again, Michael's stardom, he almost becomes the lightning rod, you know? And everything gets pulled towards him, which makes the situation even worse because you have yeah. just this insane family situation that the kids, Joseph, and everything going on. And Michael's almost trying to extricate himself from that. But, you know, he becomes a target. Yeah. yeah. Well, because he becomes the pop star. He yes. becomes the biggest thing that we're ever going to see. Yeah, pretty much. So the thing, I kind of equate this, it's, it's think about, a puppy, you have a puppy and it's the 4th of July, okay? And a firework goes off. That puppy gets scared, right? Mm -hmm. If you set off another firework, the puppy's not going to be okay with a second one. It's going to make him even more scared. Mm -hmm. They don't get used to it. They don't yeah. get used to it. They just, they go draw deeper and deeper into like hiding under the bed. And I feel like that's kind of what happens with Michael is that, you know, no, it, the fact that people start chasing him down or going through his trash or, you know, he never getting a moment of peace doesn't help bring him out of the shell. It pushes him in deeper. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, you know what? I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist. Honestly, if you are, please, I would love to speak to one of you guys about what you think about this situation. I would love to get someone's take on this, like a professional take on this particular yeah. this particular case i would be very very interested so if you are or if you're just wanting to hang out with us you guys can check out our social stuff uh you can support the show at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven 
You can check us out on Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. You can follow our Instagram at Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Uh, you can check out our Facebook at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And by the way, we are recording this uh, early as a, as we will the next couple of episodes. So the Facebook page at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod and the Instagram Rock and Roll Heaven LT are the two best ways to keep up with A, the podcast, and B, if anyone else passes between these, these episodes, uh, we will try to always post anything that happens as quickly as we find out about it. And um, still not saying our website, but you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And I'm serious. If you are a psychiatrist or a psychologist that has knowledge of this case, please email me and let me know. I'm, in, I'm incredibly interested in hearing about that psychology. So uh, make sure that you please check out all of the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. And you can still get 15% off your order at tstt.com. Uh, you know, we didn't talk about it early on because my brother's phone was slowly dying and I wanted to make sure that we got through this episode. So <laughs> please make sure everything is going to be in the show notes. So uh, if you guys want to check out our socials or would like to get your 15% off the amazing teas at tstt.com, you can check out the uh, promo code there, which is rockheaven15. And on that note, uh, I am going to say goodbye to everybody. And uh, Travis, do you have anything that you would like to say to the audience? I would. To the audience, I would like to offer Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Yay! Yay! Woo! Barely not a requirement there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks to the fact that I am a fool and forgot to put one in. I appreciate my brother for giving us our federally mandated Manford Man's reference of the podcast, which has now been satisfied. Ooh, satisfied. So, so satisfied. satisfied. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Mr. Will the Thrill. And I helped. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> okay. Maybe not. Oh, I love you so much. You want me to support you? You're going to do that anyway. <laughs> I was not, but now you're being a grumpitude. Yeah, grump. Yeah, right in the ear. Right in the ear. <laughs> I did go in my ear. Oh, it's going to take forever to come out. Yeah. All right. Would you like to say goodbye, Will? Goodbye, Will. <laughs> All right. So for the end of the episode, I'm actually going to play a song off the album they were prepping that tour for that Michael didn't want to go on. And that album is Triumph. So from that album is the song, The Lovely One. You guys have a great week. We will check you out next time. Bye. Mwah.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 